there are seven I am statements in John. Do you know the seven I am statements? Can anybody well, ask the kids first? Kids, do you know the seven I am statements? No. Well, call, if you do, if you do know some, can you please call them out? All right, we haven't got any answers. Okay, let's open it up the floor to everybody else. Tori. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the way, the truth, and life. Good. Got one. Who else? I am yeah. the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Yes. Another one? I am the gate for the sheep. Yes. Or the door for the sheep. We're going good. Getting a good run. I am the vine. <laughs> Okay, I'll give you that one. All right, I'll give you the last two. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the light of the world. These are the seven I am statements in John. Uh, they they are we're we're in the last one now. We've we've read them all, and these are powerful statements that reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. And John, in the way that he's put the book of John together, wonderfully places them there to be a reminder to us. Now, we have been working our way through the book of John, and we've been seeing section by section, week by week, and we've tried to strike a balance between uh, getting down to the nitty-gritty with small little passages, looking to tiny little bits, but the other way you could go is to look at massive sections so you can see the structure and flow of the way the book is together. We've tried to strike a bit of a balance of doing some rather big sections, but also small enough that we can deal with it piece by piece. Uh, but in this book of this Gospel of John, it was written, John tells us, for a reason, so that you may believe and have eternal life. And so each time, each part of the book of John is leading towards that. It is trying to grow us. It's trying to give you more and more reasons to believe in Jesus, enable you to believe in Jesus, and in so doing, receive eternal life. It's been, yeah, each part connects to this overarching theme. gives us more and more reasons to believe. Even people like us today in this very room. Not just the people in John's day, but God's people down through the ages. But the question becomes, once you believe in Jesus... How then shall we live? And this part of John's Gospel that we're looking at is part of this discipleship intensive at the end of John. And the evening before Jesus is to be crucified, Jesus is having this intensive teaching time. He's making the most of the hours that he has left with his disciples, preparing them for what is to come next, the next stage of Jesus' mission. Because as Jesus has been saying, I'm going away, and you can't come with me. So what does the disciples of Jesus look like when Jesus goes away? Well, Jesus has been teaching us that in these chapters of John. And here's the thing. This is where you and I are living right now. We are living in the time after Jesus has come, died, buried, rose again, ascended. So he's not bodily here with us. And so if we believe in Jesus... We should be asking the question, what does it look like for us to live in here and now in light of the fact that Jesus has won our salvation but is not here bodily with us. He's continuing his work by the Holy Spirit and working through his disciples, like those 12 disciples who were there and like us. 
In our passage today, Jesus is teaching his disciples about how to be fruitful and productive disciples. And I've just, just divided the passage into two main points. Now, each of those points has a bunch of subpoints. So, even though it's a two point sermon, it's more like seven points hiding in two. But uh, I hope you'll. Perhaps I'm, I'm channeling the Puritans too much. Um, if you've read any of their books, you'll see like they get they have their points and their sub points, and then here's twenty applications on this one uh, phrase from a, from a verse in, in Job. You know, they, they they go way over the top of their points and sub points. But here we've got our two main points. Let's get stuck into them. The first point is that we must abide. In Jesus. Disciples abide in Jesus. This is the application, the crux of what we are to do in response to these words from God this morning. Abide in Jesus. But how? How are we to do this? What does it look like? Well, Jesus uses an allegory to demonstrate what this looks like. He's going to paint a picture with words to help us understand what it means to abide in Jesus. It's also going to paint a picture of what it looks like if we fail to abide in Jesus. So, we have this allegory of the vine. And unless you're from ancient, uh, ancient Mediterranean, or perhaps you work at a winery, you're probably not familiar with how vines work. But it's pretty straightforward, so let's flesh it out. But in fleshing it out, we don't need to start with a lesson on how vines work. We actually need to go back to the Old Testament because Jesus is building on imagery that the Bible has used before. As we read in Isaiah, Jesus, uh, God describes his people Israel like a vine, a bunch of vineyard. Jesus was speaking to regular, regular Jewish folks that knew their Bible, and in their sacred writings, they were often described as the vineyard of God, Israel, God's covenant people. And God's people under Israel... God's people of Israel under the Old Covenant were like a vineyard. And God described them in that passage that we read. He, he, he saved them and he planted them like a vineyard. You know, he rescued them from Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. He set them up. He uh, gave them God's good law. He uh, came and dwelt with them. He gave them, uh, gave them the way to worship him. He gave them houses that they didn't have to build, vineyards they didn't have to plant. He, he set them up and gave them the good life. And it's described as though God cut out, uh, carved out a new vineyard. You know, he planted the hedges and put the rows of vines in, built a watchtower. He said, you know, I, I made it just right. And then as the vineyard, as the, the, um, the vine grower, as the, some translations will say, husbandman, the gardener, he came looking for the fruit that he expected his vines to grow. But he didn't find it. He didn't find good fruit. Theirs was poor and pitiful fruit. And so what do you do with a vineyard that you planted to grow grapes? What do you do with a vineyard that doesn't grow grapes? You get rid of it. So this was a, a, a judgment on Israel about what they had done with what God had given them. They had not produced fruit like God told them to and so that judgment said, look, I'm going to get rid of the vineyard. But there was still a glimmer of hope. There are passages in the Old Testament that remind us that God was still going to bring about a plan of redemption. Even if he cut them right back to a stump, there would be a branch. 
of a special branch that would come forward and bring redemption for God's people. There was still hope, even though they were judged for their, for their actions. And what Jesus is doing in John 15 is playing on that old imagery, the imagery of a vineyard, a vineyard that, a, a vine specifically, that sometimes doesn't bear fruit. Let's look in that first verse. The way that God's people are meant to be a fruit-bearing bearing vine is by abiding in Jesus. I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it might be, it will be even more fruitful. You already are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So you see here, Jesus portrays himself as the true vine. He is the trunk of the vine, so to speak. He is the true vine, and then there are people who are in him as branches. Jesus is portraying himself as the fulfillment of those Old Testament images. There was the, the Old Testament vine of Israel, but they had failed to bear fruit. And here is Jesus, the true vine, the viniest vine, the real deal who would succeed where Israel would fail. And in this allegory, God the Father is the gardener, the one who plants and manages the vineyard, the one who is looking for the fruit, to harvest the fruit. And as a good gardener, when there are dead branches, he locks them up. When there are branches that are not bearing fruit, he cuts them away. There is no need in a vineyard for ornamental branches. If they don't, they might look the part, but if they don't bear the fruit, they're cut off. But the fruitful branches don't survive unscathed. Even the fruitful branches are cut. But they are pruned. They're pruned so that they might do what? They might bear more fruit. And this is where uh, the useful information about vines comes in. Vines, uh, you know, maybe you might be more familiar with rose bushes. You see rose bushes. Uh, and then if when you want them to flower, a certain number of weeks before you want them to flower, what do you do? You cut them right back, and then they burst forth into a beautiful, colourful display of flowers. But they have to be pruned back in order to be more beautiful in their display of flowers. And it's a similar story with vine branches. Vines need to be cut back, trimmed in the right way, in order that they might bear the best crops of fruit. Jesus drops in here a little aside about the disciples that it might, in the first place, seem a little bit out of place. He says, but you are already clean. Okay, so talking about a vine, I, I, I cut off the branches that don't bear fruit, I prune the branches that do bear fruit so they can bear more fruit, but you're already clean. What, what, what is that about? Why is he talking about cleanliness? And he's talking about pruning vines. Well, fun fact, in the Greek, the, the word for pruning carries with it the idea of cleansing. And so by Jesus saying, you're already clean, what he's saying is, you're already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. So uh, there is a little play on words. This is a little fun fact, uh, throwing um, throwing Paco a bone so we can look up the Greek later. And there's a little play on words there about the way that the pruning and the cutting off the branches works together all, and, and the ones who are pruning are clean. So, 
Jesus is identifying that the disciples in this story are the branches that he's talking about. And that there's something about the message of Jesus that enables his disciples to bear more fruit. And he goes on to flesh this out from verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit itself. It must remain in the vine. If that's branch off, and just leave it by itself. It doesn't have any life. It needs to remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is telling us, he's commanding his disciples to remain in him. They must abide in Jesus. But this isn't just a one-time deal where you can just do it once and forget about it. It's a, I've checked that off the list, I've done my abiding for Jesus, and it's all over. No, it's a, it's a, it's a way of being, it's a state of being in Jesus. It's who Jesus' disciples are. It's those who remain in Jesus. They abide in him. But it's not just one way. Jesus says, look, it's, if you remain in me, I remain in you. For us to be in Christ means that Christ is also in us. That's a wonderful thing. But the beautiful thing about this command is that it's it's, it's somewhat passive, isn't it? Like if you have to stay still, sure, you're, you're doing something by staying still, but you're not really doing anything. You, you, you just don't go anywhere else. This is what the disciples are called to do. They're, they're called to remain, to stay in Him. <coughs> stay put. Don't go anywhere. Don't go off and try and find something else. And I, and I wonder if you might think of the ways that you are tempted the ways that you are tempted not to remain in the body. Perhaps we're tempted to chase after the way that's bad. There's something interesting going on over here. Maybe there's something that itches, uh, that stretches out itching ears. There's that temptation to kind of to compromise on Jesus for something else in the world. Some other message, some other thing that seems more pressing in the moment. Perhaps um, you have a love for the world, you know, you enjoy the good gifts that God has given us in this world and, and you're tempted to pay more attention to that to invest your time and effort in those things as opposed to remaining in Jesus Christ. Perhaps uh, you have a temptation to layer up traditions and obligations on yourself with burdens that you have to carry that are not burdens that are given to you by God. In that sense, we might be tempted to, to move away from the life that we have in Christ to try and make our own life by our own works. At this point, I think we can make some conclusions about who are the vines, the, who are the people that Jesus is talking about in this story. We know that in the Old Testament, the vine was the picture of Israel. Jesus has said he is the true vine, he is the, he is the new Israel. But who are these, new, these branches in this vine? Well, I think he is trying to say that this is his new covenant people. This is his church. These are the people who belong to Jesus. Israel of old was the vineyard of the old covenant, but now we have a new covenant in Jesus, and this new covenant people is called the church. They're the people connected to Jesus. It includes the faithful Jews who believed in Jesus, 
and anyone else who's grafted into this vine that we have been down through And so, what are the signs that you are under this new covenant? What are the external signs that have shown us that we've entered into this covenant with God? Well, it is is baptism. Baptism is a sign that you have belonged to God. You've been washed of your sins. You've been grafted into Jesus. And then another sign that we do is we take this symbolic meal that we will do shortly with communion, where we are reminded uh, that we feed on Christ, that we are in Christ, that that we are under his new covenant that was cut in his blood. So that's the external signs that we might have taken. But there's other external signs that we should look for as well. That is good fruit, good fruit that represents an inward work of God in us because we live in a world where there are those who look like they belong to the vine but might not actually belong. And so this is a picture of what theologians call the visible church. So what we can see with our eyes, because I can't see into your heart, we can't see into each other's heart about who truly is in Christ. We, we've been told that there will be people who grow up in the church but still reject it. We've been told that there will be people who, uh, like the parable of the seeds, where the seed falls on rocky ground and it grows up but then it dies off. Or the, or the seed that grows among the weeds, it grows up but then it's choked out by the tears of the world. But there'll be those who look like they're part of God's covenant people but they go astray or they reject God's truth. And I think those are the kinds of people that Jesus is talking about here to get cut off. They look like they're part of the vine, but they're not bearing any fruit. And so they are taken away. This good fruit is the, is the productive Christian life. It starts with the, the core elements of the character that we have that is pervaded by the Holy Spirit. We look for the fruits of the Spirit that Paul lays out in Galatians, like love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Did I miss one? Goodness. These fruits of the Spirit undergird a life of obedience to Jesus' command. Because the pruning comes, the cleaning comes with the Word of God. And so we are living out our life as God's disciples, Christ's disciples, in obedience to Him. And these commands that He gives us about how to live are the framework within which we pursue our fruitful Christian life. Kids, if you think about your backyard, most of most of you have a backyard with uh, fences on three sides, something like that. And when you are out of your backyard, you have this great freedom. Now you can walk around and go, oh man, there's all these fences and I have to stay inside the fence. But actually that is a space that has been cleared out for you to find happiness and to pursue um, to pursue your adventures, to pursue play, and to, to pursue your curiosity. You are in the yard, you're in that backyard for your security, but it is also a place for you to be able to be fruitful. Within those boundaries, you can play and explore and invent and worship and rest and relish. That's what it is for us as Christians out in the world. Christ has given us the boundaries not as this thing like of God being mean and saying, you know, you can't have nice things, but actually saying, no, inside these boundaries you can have wonderful things and amazing things. You can pursue the endeavours that God has put before you. We see the boundaries as a chore sometimes, like we have to white-knuckle it, like a white-knuckle obedience, denying the pleasures of the flesh. 
But actually, it's a joy to be able to say, no, I'm going to stay in here where there is life, where there is joy, where there is hopefulness with God. It's a pleasure to know God, to obey God, to live within, thinking of the image of the Garden of Eden, to live within the boundaries and the beautiful provisions that he has provided. Jesus says, If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Like we had with Israel of old, Jesus talks about it as uh, that there are those people who will, there are those people who show that they are not part of God's faithful people, that they're not bearing fruit, and they will be taken away. There are those who have grown up under the visible signs of belonging to the vine, but who will yet spurn Christ. And for all intents and purposes, they look like they're part of the vine, but then when it comes to vine fruit, they are lacking. And I wonder if that resounds with any of us, whether that is representative of who we are today. What does it look like for these people to be cut away on the ground? The allegory is cutting off the branches, but what does it look like on the ground in real life? There's a few ways that we see this happening. You see people who just stop coming, just stop belonging to God's community, stop coming to church gatherings and reject faith. Sometimes they're actively cut off. God gives us in the word that what to do if the external signs of the, somebody's life aren't measuring up to what Christ says the external signs of obedience would look like, then they are excommunicated. They are cut off from God's people in the hopes that they will repent and return. But that's an active way that they are cut off from God's people. <coughs> It's a harsh thing to be cut off from God's people because the imagery is of one being burned with fire, which brings to mind the idea of the, the lake of fire, the way that hell is described, being cut off, being under the wrath of God, being rejected by God and receiving judgment. It's a hard thing to think about and talk about at times. But we don't say, we don't talk about it to try and scare you into faith. We, we, we want to seriously warn you about what is on the line. There is a road that leads to destruction, and it's easy to go down. Yet for those who are in Christ, if they remain in him, they will also have the words of Jesus, and they have wonderful access to the power of God. We're called to abide in Jesus and ask. Abide in Jesus and ask. Because Jesus says in, in verse 7, If you remain in me and in my words, remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. They call this uh, this doctrine the union with Christ. This is an important picture of what it is like to belong to Jesus. We haven't just been saved to be, um, you know, we haven't just been given a ticket to heaven and say, make sure you turn up at the train station on time and get on the right train. That's not what being saved is. Like being saved is being united to God, Christ, in union with Him, joined to Him, He in us and us in Him. It's like a branch being grafted into the vine. It brings life, and they they work together with one another. They're united and connected. 
And so for us as Christians, we are powered by Christ. We, we can't do what we're called to do in bearing fruit unless we are connected to the vine. We have inside access to God. There's a little saying that says, it's not what you know, it's, it's who you know. If you know the right people, you can, anybody can seem to get ahead in life. Um, or they can get the best deal, or get the inside information, or the best seats. And so for, for disciples of Christ, if they know the right guy, we get all the best stuff. And so for the Christians, we do know the right guy. We know Jesus. And so we are powered by him. We are sustained by him. We can pray to him and ask him for whatever we need. He's going to give us all the best stuff. And not the best stuff in terms of worldly thinking, necessarily riches or wealth or a free ride to the top. No, he's going to hook us up with the best stuff in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. He is where fruitfulness comes from. It comes from Jesus, not from our own strength. Yes, we have to be obedient. Yes, we have to work. But it comes from Jesus. All our success in Christ comes from him. We will need to remain in him. He'll supply our need. We abide in Jesus' love. We abide in Jesus' love. Now that Jesus has, has, has um, he does what he's done all across the pages of the, of the book of John. He demonstrates how interconnected he is with God the Father. Jesus is doing what the Father's doing. He loves, now I love, now you love. Now the disciples are told to remain in that love, to remain in it. Don't move, stay there. But how do they remain in that love? Well, he says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, is this the right one? Yes, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. They keep, they remain by keeping God's commandments, Jesus' commandments. And it's not earning Jesus' love. It's given freely without merit. But how will you know that you're loved by Jesus? Keep his commands. It's the fruit that shows that you belong to him, that you're joined into the vine. You'll bear the fruit that goes with belonging to the vine. And Jesus is the true example of this once again. Because he says, I'm doing it with my father, and you are to mimic this. Do the same. And lastly, we're moving quite quickly now. This last uh, sub-point on the first point is that Jesus wants us to joyfully. Where does this lead us? Where does this love, this abiding lead us? He's been telling the disciples this for a good reason. It is for their joy, for their fullness of joy. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Because Jesus wants his disciples to have joy. I wonder if you believe that. Do you believe that that's what Jesus wants for his disciples? That what, what Jesus wants for you? He wants his disciples to have a full joy. And so that means for you, if you want full joy, if you want true joy, you must abide in Jesus. Abide with his words in you. Obey his commands. Pray to him to supply your needs. This is where we find full joy, complete joy. And it's a remedy for joy that's held out for you. Will you take it? It's medicine for your soul. 
It's sitting here ready to be applied. Will you take up this soothing balm? Okay. The second main thrust in this passage is that we are to love one another like Jesus. To love one another like Jesus. This is a, um, one of the overarching commandments that we have as disciples. It's a summary of what we are called to. And then Jesus, again, is the key example of this. Let's see how Jesus demonstrates what true love looks like. Because love equals the great commandment and example. Jesus was the perfect man. God in flesh is the perfect example of everything. And he is a perfect example of love in a special way because he laid down his life for his disciples. In verse 12 he says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You see, this command to love each other, as he has loved them, is not just for when the disciples are in the mood, oh, I'm feeling loving today, I'm going to go and love brothers and sisters in Christ, or my family, or my neighbour. It's, it's, it's something that should be who we are and what we do normally, like automatically, to love each other as Christ has loved us. But the thing is, sometimes when we find ourselves dreading a task or when we, when we see the, the difficulty that down the road, maybe you've got some deadline you're going to work to, you've got this big thing hanging over your head, and you just don't want to do it because it is too hard. But I don't know about you, but I find often when I get into the middle of it and start pushing forward and start working hard on it, actually I find joy in doing that. Making progress. Things are happening. I'm enjoying this work. If you struggle to show love to one another, you might not be feeling it, but I encourage you to dive in headfirst and to work at it and to do it and offer the feelings that we associate with love will follow. Love each other. Do it more and more. And I think particularly here Jesus is talking about loving the disciples, loving each other, so God's family, loving his family, so brothers and sisters in Christ, loving each other. But we should certainly love all people, all God's image bearers, including those outside the church and even our enemies. God tells us to love our enemies. We love our neighbour as ourselves. Yet here I think he is talking about the special way that brothers and sisters are to look out for one another and care for one another, even going so far as to lay down their life. We automatically know how love works for our family. I have a special love for my wife that is, that is uh, different to the general love that we have for each other. There is different orders of love that we have in the relationship. I think we need to remember that our family in Christ sits a little bit higher um, in terms of the, the love that we have to show others. But what does this love look like? It looks sacrificial. It's a sacrificial love. Jesus sacrificed his life to save us. He died on the cross for our sin. He defeated death and now he went in our place like a, like a lamb to make atonement. He went in our place to give us life. And yes, he, he defeated death, he, he rose again. But this is a picture. This is a picture of what it looks like of full love to, 
to go and to do something that you didn't need to do. We just had no, we had no claim on Jesus as if he uh, needed to do it for us uh, because he owed us. He did it out of love. He did it, did it out of gracious kindness, out of his mercy. That's the kind of way that we should love one another. Laying down our lives to one another. Sacrificial love. A, a, a sacrificial love that gives way to our own desires for the sake of others. Gives our, puts our own plans to the side for the sake of loving others. Puts our own rights. You know, I might have a right to be angry about something. I might have a right to require somebody some kind of um, uh, something from somebody to perhaps promise that and have it come through on their promises. But sacrificial love means putting aside all the things that we and we could claim the right to in order to love one another. And yes, this should start in our family home. And I'll pick on husbands for a moment because there's a great verse about this kind of love that we display in our relationships with our wives. And God tells us that the relationship between husband and wife is meant to be a, wife is meant to be a picture of what it looks like with sacrificial love. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for them. Jesus loved the church by laying down his life. That sacrificial love. So husbands, you get to display Christ in that way by following him in those footsteps, by giving that sacrificial love to your wife. But it's a general principle. This should be a picture that is in each of our homes that demonstrates this. If our, our, our life should be secure with God, um, and, and so we're free to put our life on the line, to lay down our life for others. If you think about banks, you know, every time a bank goes belly up, they talk about, you know, that the whatever country that's Federal Reserve can step in and bail them out. You know, they risk their money and some investments or something, they did some choices they make don't work out. Um, and so the banks, the Federal Reserve, will step in to bail them out, like an insurance policy. Well, we have God at our back. He's, he said, look, I'm going to give you your life back. I'm going to resurrect you. Your life is secure with Christ. You can lay down your life because in Christ, you will be able to take it back up again. Like Christ laid down his life. So you are free to put your life on the line. You are free to risk it. You can, you can, you can put your life on the line to glorify God, to show your love to the brothers and sisters. Because whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. And so we've seen great pictures of it in the past. We read those great missionary stories about those Christians who put their life on their line so that they could take the gospel to others. You know, in, the, in the jungles of Ecuador. In, in Africa or wherever else. We see them putting their life on the line. But that's not the only way. We are to be sacrificial in our love in other ways, to put our lives on the line to bring glory to God, to perhaps even risk a jail sentence by calling your LGBT friend to repent and find life in Jesus. To sign letters with your name on it to your authorities, calling them to walk in righteousness. To mention to your neighbours that you believe in Jesus. 
to be willing to uh, regularly serve your church family, and even to be sacrificial in the way that you lead and pray with your family, even if it's awkward. The sacrificial nature of love should be so evident in our own homes. Yes, it's, it's wonderful to hear those stories about those, those martyrs and the amazing things that people have done for God out on the mission field or um, back through history. But that sacrificial love, it's not just something that one day you turn around and you do this amazing sacrificial thing for God. It should be part of our lives, that sacrificial love from the beginning, from our own homes, outward. Everyday faithfulness, laying down our life for Christ, laying down our life for love one another in a sacrificial way. This love also looks like um, being friends of God. And this is some good news because even though we're called to obedience, we get the inside scoop. We're not just uh, we're not just uh, left in the dark, as uh, as Jesus says to his disciples. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father and made known to you. Jesus is saying, look, even though we should be slaves and, and should just do what we're told, Jesus said, look, I've told you, I'm being like a friend to you, not just a master bossing you around. I'm letting you in. I'm showing you what my business is about. So there is this sense of, of friendship that, that God has invited us in. We get to see what's happening under the hood. He makes us his friends. But we also see this love by being chosen by God. Chosen by God. Lastly, he says in these last couple verses, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give. This is my command, love one another. Here we see the interworking between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. This is a question that often gets people a little bit tripped up. How does this work? How can God be in control of everything? And yet I'm told to make these decisions and do these things. Well, because these things go together. This is how God designed the world to work. He designed the world to work through ordinary means. There's clear commands in this passage to obey. There's clear commands in this passage to love. And clear commands in this passage to abide and to ask God for things. Yet at the same time we're told this happens because Jesus chose them. Like, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go on their fruit happens because of what Jesus had done in bringing those disciples to himself. He's not being inconsistent with what he said to go and do it and to be this way. He's laying up a structure that makes it possible because God works through means, through ordinary means. The way that he brings those disciples to bear fruit is that he teaches them his word. The way that he brings these disciples to bear fruit is that he chooses them and brings them near. He, he enables them to bear fruit by warning them not to neglect these things. He brings them to bear fruit by sending them the Holy Spirit, as we read in the previous section. They are able to do this because of God's sovereign working. They are able to do this because Jesus chose them and gave them all the things that they need in order to bring about his plan. 
And this is how it works with us even today. We love him because he first loved us. And in choosing his disciples, he appoints us to go bear fruit. But how is God achieving that? How is God bringing out his plan to bear fruit? Through ordinary means, commanding us with these words, warning us with these words, sending the Holy Spirit to work in us. And the Holy Spirit who brings to mind all of the words of Jesus. God puts us in communities where we love one another, where we encourage one another, where we keep each other accountable. He puts us in families where we are instructed and, and enabled and prepared to be able to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus. God's plans, his, his sovereign work in bringing about all of his, all of his plans is in and through the things that he has given us. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us with two things. Abide in Christ. Don't go anywhere else. Stay, remain in Him. And love one another like Jesus loved. He laid down His life. And the greatest act of love that we can do is to lay down our life for others as well. Jesus laid down His life most amply as shown in this picture that we're about to partake of now. We've taken the bread and the wine. Let me pray, and then we will get stuck into that. 